0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. 230 years after the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, jurists and scholars are still debating what our founding fathers really had in mind in certain portions of the document. We now have a better idea. University of Missouri-St. Louis political scientist Dave Robertson is drawn from myriad primary sources to give us what may be the clearest picture yet of why the framers did what they did at the Constitutional Convention. It's all detailed in his book, The Original Compromise, What the Constitution's Framers Were Really Thinking, which we discussed with the publication of his book in 2013. The key word in the title is compromise. In this Encore broadcast, I asked Dave if today's politicians could have pulled it off.
1: Well, I think they try to, but right now we're so polarized it's very hard to do. But, you know, we have an example of the way compromise produces some solutions to problems by going to the theater and seeing the movie Lincoln. Mm-hmm. The kind of politicians that got together to enact the 13th or to to send the 13th Amendment to the states were a lot like these politicians. There were some good, some bad. I personally like politicians as a group. But... They were politicians, and it was their job to try to negotiate different kinds of interests and come up with a solution. That happened at the convention
0: too. Well, you mentioned the politics of it, and there's a note I have here in front of me that from the book that you point out that uh, much of what they said and did – as politicians, it was to mask other ambitions uh, during the whole, this whole process.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, there was a, um, an author named Charles Beard who talked about the Constitution 100 years ago from a progressive era point of view, talking about how, well, you know, they, they boosted their sort of economic prospects with this document. And that's been really disproven for the most part over the course of the next 100 years. But even though you can't say that they got an advantage financially from the constitution they sure did politically because almost all of them went on to fill the offices they created including james madison who served as president and and
0: uh, he keeps coming up again and again and again i mean he was a key guy obviously
1: absolutely he deserves to be the known as the father of the constitution We see Madison in our civics books and our textbooks as kind of this elderly person with these paintings from 1821. This was a young man, 36 years old, from the middle of Virginia where you could look out your porch and see forever. It was incredibly optimistic about the future of the country if it could be governed better. But he was fairly slippery as well. I mean he had, his, he had his own agenda
0: and he established things early on so that they would follow a logical sequence and therefore meet some of his expectations, if I can put it that way, a little more easily.
1: Yeah, like Alexander Hamilton, he shared a vision of a stronger national government that could help the United States compete on the world stage with all those big powers that already existed. And his ambitions were for a much stronger, but also Republican national government, Republican with a small r. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I think uh,
0: what we ought to do is set the stage, as you do in the book. You begin with what's called the setting. Uh, What conditions were like at that time? We had the Articles of Confederation. The country was run under these articles at that time. Why was this convention necessary?
1: It was necessary because the government looked like it was failing. It was meeting less often. Fewer people were showing up. But the conditions were as dire as ever. We went through an economic uh, slowdown that was about as serious as the Depression in a lot of ways during the middle of the 1780s. We were starting to come out of it, but there were problems with uh, defending the country. The world's most powerful navy was still floating off the coast, still had forts on American soil. Uh, Spain was a threat. There was a threat internally in the states where there was turmoil in a state like Rhode Island between the landless and creditors. Yeah, we have to keep in mind this is 1787 we're talking about, not too far removed from the Revolutionary War. Absolutely not. Yeah. Most of these individuals at the convention played some part in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Well, what we
0: have are 13 colonies, some large, some small, some north, some south. So you bring all these disparate parts together in Philadelphia to try to forge uh, our Constitution. It was set up to fail, actually, wasn't it?
1: It was a huge task, almost uh, overwhelming task, not just to find some kind of stronger government, but to find a stronger government that would satisfy somebody like Madison and still make it Republican. That was the key. They had to find a way to make government that was both strong and responsive to the people. So there were a
0: couple of plans. There was a New Jersey plan. There was a Virginia plan. One took a broader look and the other uh, not, not quite so broad. Competing uh, plans right from the get-go.
1: Right from the get-go, the Madison faction, he was trying to build a political coalition of six states behind his plan, developed this Virginia plan which spelled out proportional representation that is the larger the state, the more votes you got in both houses of Congress. It had much stronger commercial powers than the government we wound up with at the end of the convention stronger military powers, and the national government, imagine this, had the power in Madison's plan to veto any law that a state would pass. Imagine how that would have affected us. Right.
0: And the state's obviously very, very mindful of this, and there was a natural competition between
1: states, states' rights, and uh, and the federal government. Right. And that's why Madison tried to put together a coalition of six states by putting first on the agenda... A vote for proportional representation in the House and the Senate. If he could get them to pass that, he would get six states behind him for a stronger national government. Because they were larger states. That's right. They would have the power to determine what that national government did. And we'll get to this later, but that, that came up to be
0: a, a, an issue later on when they were talking about uh, other, other aspects of the Constitution.
1: Absolutely. The other protagonist in this fight is a guy named Roger Sherman, who is not quite as prominent as Madison. He's not well-remembered today, 30 years older than Madison, one of the oldest delegates at the convention from Connecticut. And Connecticut was doing just fine, thank you very much, mm-hmm. and knew that they wanted some stronger powers for the national government, but not strong powers of the way Madison thought strong powers ought to be formed. So Sherman and his allies fought for the smaller states against Madison's coalition. It's not really small against large because Georgia had a tiny population and New York, which was opposed to Madison, had a pretty big population.
0: And there were a couple of uh, colonies that weren't represented at all.
1: Well – New Hampshire didn't get there until midway through the convention. Mm-hmm. Rhode Island, to the great uh, relief of many of the delegates themselves, never sent delegates to the convention. Because people at the convention would talk about Rhode Island as a bunch of crazies, mm-hmm. as people you didn't want to be represented at the convention because they would mess things up.
0: And that was the first battle, obviously, was the whole idea of representation, the establishment of the House of Representatives, right. and then ultimately the Senate. Give us some sense as to how this uh, – first with, with the House, how that uh, debate went.
1: Well, they they all knew that there had to be stronger legislative powers and the real commitment was to a stronger national government. If they were going to commit to a strong central real government, not just a confederation like the United Nations, they knew that the governance had to be more Republican than, than just the representatives in the confederation congress. So they – negotiated over a House of Representatives, pretty much came to a conclusion on that, but left the Senate in the background knowing that there would be two houses of Congress so that they could check each other. And the fight, over the House of Representatives turned on how many representatives each state would get. That became a pretty dicey political issue. Mm -hmm. What were some of the options that they felt they had? Well, they they were pretty much agreed, even people like Sherman were willing to concede that the House of Representatives would be based on population, not just on each state having an equal set of representatives. They had to be concerned about big states having too many votes, and they had to be concerned about slavery. How do you count slaves when you apportion population? They already had done a little of this during the Confederation in assigning the responsibility for funding the government to states. They had counted slaves as three-fifths of a person, and eventually they broke down and just extended that and put it into the Constitution. With all
0: the discussion that they had about slavery, it's interesting that the word slavery, slavery never appears in the Constitution.
1: They avoided that word scrupulously. They didn't want to put the word slavery in the Constitution. It would be controversial. They didn't like the idea that slavery existed. But at the in the secrecy of the convention hall – and remember, these were all secret proceedings. We didn't see any of Madison's notes for many years after the convention ended. In the privacy of the convention hall, the debate over slavery was frank and it was chilling at times. Yeah. Well, uh, it
0: was – it was that, and again, I was uh, startled to find out that that word was never never included in that. W- right. What about, uh, just to, to backtrack a moment, to, to your sourcing? I mean, th- this book is being promoted as probably having a greater insight into the mindset of the, uh, of the Founding Fathers than anything that's been uh, published yet. Uh, w- what about your sourcing
1: in this? Most of this is based on the records of the Constitutional Convention, and there are scholars who have looked at how accurate these are. Madison's Notes seemed to hold up pretty well by all tests. I excluded one set of notes from a delegate named Yates whose notes were kind of doctored later on to get involved in later politics. But there were some other records. There were letters by delegates. George Washington would write home from time to time. Other delegates would write home. So there's a lot of evidence that we can use, and there's a lot of background information that we can use too.
0: I'm surprised that uh, scholars didn't precede you in in, uh, putting all this stuff together? Well,
1: they have done. There are historians who've written great, wonderful histories of the Constitutional Convention that tend to go in sequence. This book doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. It looks at topics, and it tries to figure out specifically what it is the framers were thinking. What are these guys thinking when they come up with a House of Representatives and a Senate, presidency, and the Electoral College, of all things? Mm -hmm. How in the world did we come up with this idea? Well, Madison himself said, I hadn't really given a lot of great thought to what we're going to do with this executive. We know we want one, but we don't know who's going to choose him. And remember, for these guys, who chooses you tells you how they're going to behave because it's who you're beholden to. For most of the convention... A lot of the delegates wanted Congress, as originally proposed in the Virginia plan, wanted Congress to choose the president. Well, you can imagine that that was going to be not entirely a happy circumstance. And once the Senate was was settled as equal state representation, Madison and Hamilton and the others said, we need a more independent president than than we're going to have. So we need to fight for an alternative. While Congress was assuming that that Congress would choose the president during the convention an alternative plan was developed based on some separate group of people who would not be members of Congress who would choose the president. That's where the germ of the Electoral College came from.
0: It's sort kind of a Rube Goldberg <laughs> well, it Contra- like, contraption.
1: Yeah, it's meant to avoid yeah. having Congress do it.
0: Sure. Uh, because they didn't want the president to be beholden and, That's right. they, and bring the politics. Uh, bring the politics.
1: Well, and that. make the president subordinate to Congress. Yeah.
0: We were talking about sourcing a moment ago. Uh-huh. We already have a call from Ed, who uh, is bringing up one of the key sources of oh, yes. uh, information for you. So let's bring him into the conversation. Ed, go ahead. You're on the air. Uh,
2: the professor was talking about uh, Ma- Madison, and and I know he was one of the writers of the Federalist Papers. Even though mm-hmm. he didn't, he didn't say he was. You know, they didn't. They used pseudonyms, I guess, but. My question is: There, there must have been the anti-federalist papers. You know, it's like taking, you know, like fair and balanced relative to Fox News, fair and balanced. And who were the anti-federalists? Because I, I would guess, I would just guess, one of them probably was Jefferson, who, you know, I'm just guessing, would have said. Yeah, let's let's do state states' rights more, you know, kind of sorta. And of. who were the anti-federalists? Because you hear our congresspeople quote the federalists; they're only taking one side of the argument, you yeah. know. Right? You're with me?
1: I am with you. And I think that's a great question. It's really a two-part question. What about the Federalist Papers, and what about the people who didn't like the Constitution that was produced? I'm trying to explain the document that came out of that convention, and that got ratified by the states and went into effect. So even though the Federalists raised a lot of claims and helped push Madison and others to put forward a Bill of Rights, I'm really talking about that original document before the Bill of Rights comes along. When I talk about sources, there are a lot of great histories of the events at the convention and the chronology of who said what, when, where. I'm trying to get deeper than that and work from the House of Representatives, for example, or the Senate or the Electoral College and try to ask these guys and, and look at their documents to ask, what were you thinking? When you came to that conclusion, when you came to that agreement, the Federalist Papers are great because they were written by Madison, Hamilton, and John Jay to help push support for the Constitution and its ratification in the state of New York after they had written the Constitution. Hamilton and Madison were there. John Jay was not. But the Federalist Papers, and this really sort of uh, gets me going a little bit, that the Federalist Papers are just not a reliable source of information on what the framers were thinking. One of the reasons I wrote this book was the increasing use of the Federalist Papers, both by people in government and on both sides, and by people outside of government saying, well, this is what the framers meant. It's not what they meant. The Federalist Papers hardly ever talk about slavery. But slavery was critical to this convention. The Federalist Papers don't say anything about the possibility of a national – government veto of state laws. But that was dear to Madison's heart, and he was frustrated thinking that the government might not work very well without it. There are other great examples of things that the Federalist Papers say, including Madison, saying things that he would have almost laughed at at the Constitutional Convention. Meanwhile, he was writing to Jefferson, who supported the Constitution, though with some reluctance and trying to explain to Jefferson how disappointed he was with the way this all turned out. Jefferson was on the side of ratification, but he didn't like some of the powers and provisions in the Constitution.
0: And Jefferson, of course, wasn't present. He was in France. Right. He was in
1: France. Yeah. Um, How uh,
0: much did they draw upon the Articles of Confederation for the work that they did there? Did they just totally disavow
1: that? Pretty much they started from scratch and said we need a strong central government. And they they came to that agreement right in the first couple of days. Mm -hmm. They came to an agreement that there should be a bicameral legislature, a two-house legislature. Almost everybody agreed, including the authors of the New Jersey plan, there ought to be an executive at the national level and a court. So that much of the plan was pretty much agreed on by everybody there.
0: The devil was in the details, as is so often the case. Absolutely. We have an email here from Andy in St. Louis uh, to continue the most recent line of thinking here. As revolutionary thinkers in their own time, did the framers believe that the Constitution they were composing would last indefinitely into the future, or did they believe that it might someday have to be rewritten? It seems to me that today we view the Constitution as a timeless document, but what did the framers think about
1: its future application? Well, they certainly provided for amendments, so they knew it could be changed. They probably didn't know anticipate some of the changes we made, but they certainly knew that it could be changed, except for one thing. Every state gets the same number of senators in the U.S. Senate, whether it was Delaware then against Virginia or Delaware today against California. Same number of senators. But As for longevity, some didn't think it would last very long. Some really didn't know how long it would last before being changed. It really wasn't in their experience for a written constitution to last for an indefinite period. This is a time when to change governments, you'd have to decapitate a a king or to expel him from the country. One of the great landmarks, one of the great hallmarks of this constitution is that we've had so many peaceful transitions transitions of powers without having some kind of bloody riots to bring changes of leadership into existence. And and
0: the changes come at times when there's been plenty of emotion Absolutely. uh, Needless to say Um, We have another email here I'd like to bring in now. What is new in your book that is most pertinent to today's national debate in which all players spout off about the Constitution we make demigods of the founders and find such disparate conclusions to guide us in supporting modern
1: applications of the principles embodied in the foundation document. I'd say two things. One is real human politicians, not philosophers, not angels, not, thank goodness, political scientists, wrote the Constitution. And they wrote it as a rule book for the future play of politics. They trusted, or at least allowed, for politicians in the future to make substantive decisions about what the United States would do with this power. But they never thought that they were spelling out all the details about the boundaries of the power of the House or the Senate or the states or the federal government. They wouldn't have thought that. They created a contested field based on a bunch of ambiguous terms like necessary and proper general welfare. I was just looking at my notes here. Uh, uh, You write that the framers utilized intentional ambiguity. (laughs) Absolutely. Just like the authors of lots of legislation over the course of American history. What are the most conspicuous
0: ambiguities? You just gave one example.
1: uh, Necessary and proper. They knew they were going to have to add some powers. And even Roger Sherman, who was reluctant to concede power, said, well, all right, we need some kind of elastic clause. That was one you know the battle over um, a standing army many of them like elbridge gary wanted to limit the standing army they would be shocked at the size of the military today he wanted to limit the size of the army to 2 or 3000 troops and you know, that didn't sound very reasonable. Even in 1787, George Washington supposedly said, well, let's also add a provision that nobody can invade us with more than 3,000 troops.
0: You know, it, it also brings to my mind, at least, uh, the, raising the issue of original intent and how easy or complicated it would be today to try to determine what original intent really was.
1: Yeah, there's different ways to try to do that, to see what common meaning of words is, but these are politicians, and I mean that in a good way, just like you would look at Abraham Lincoln is a politician, and they were designing words intentionally to have some flexibility because they couldn't cover all of the possible contingencies, and even if they could, they could never agree on what it was that the government actually ought to do with some specific powers.
0: University of Missouri-St. Louis political scientist Dave Robertson discussing his book, The Original Compromise, What the Constitution's Framers Were Really Thinking. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org/stlOnAir. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, ninety point seven KWMU. Thanks for listening. I'm Don Marsh.